Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Lauren, you know, throughout this whole election, one of the thoughts that I have had is, will anyone actually vote for Kanye West? You know, he was only on the ballot in 12 states, but he he actually did receive quite a few votes. In Vermont, 1,266 people voted for him. He got 4,894 votes in Louisiana, 5,590 in Oklahoma. But it appears like his base is in Tennessee, where he got 10,216 votes. (laughs) And Lauren, we do joke a lot about Kanye West on this show because you're a major fan. You follow him really closely. Uh, So, you know, after Kanye's presidential run, what do you think is next for him? Virginia, they're still counting votes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You know, I think that's kind of what you got to love about Kanye is that you never know what's happening. I mean, I'd love to see he's promised a Christmas album. I'd love to see a Christmas album come out. Jesus is King, too, would be high on my list. I'm sure he and Kim will keep up on the beat with criminal justice reform. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just such a, uh, a fun and interesting story to follow and, you know, just good for him. He, uh, he feels a calling from God on his heart and he went for it. He started the birthday party and he ran and yeah, I'm just excited to see what the future holds for Kanye. Yeah, he's definitely an interesting guy and always entertaining, that is for sure. But we do have a lot of election news besides Kanye West to get to today. So Lauren, can you give us the rundown? What do we have queued up for today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, we welcome Jessica Anderson, Executive Director of Heritage Action for America, to explain what the big wins were for conservative women in the 2020 election and what may be next as claims of voter fraud continue to surface. We also chat with our friend and the editor-in-chief of The Daily Signal, Kate Trinkle, about what she saw on her trip to Philadelphia last weekend as voters reacted to some news outlets calling the election. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. We are so excited to welcome back Jessica Anderson, the Executive Director of Heritage Action for America, back to Problematic Women. Jessica, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here today. Today, we are breaking down the election and why the 2020 election was a big win for conservative women in the House. I want to begin by just chatting a little bit about the ways Heritage Action supported strong conservative candidates throughout the election. So what was your mission as an organization going into the election? So going into the election, Heritage Action really wanted to tell the story of all of the policy issues that were at stake this election. It wasn't just candidates on the ballot. It really was and is two different choices for the future of America and really two different choices on who you trust most when you look at things like healthcare, economic recovery, 
holding China accountable, providing safety and security in your neighborhoods. And so all of these issues matter. We know that they matter to voters. And so Heritage Action sought to make those issues really permeate in a district at the local level so that voters saw past just the red team, blue team on the ticket and really voted on their policy issues. So Penny Nance, she's the president of Concern Women for America. She wrote in a recent Fox News op-ed that the only wave in 2020 was the election of conservative women to the U.S. House of Representatives. The uh, 11 conservative women running for re-election won, and then at least another 13 conservative women were newly elected, which really doubles the number of conservative women in Congress. That's huge. So exciting. Why do you think that we saw such a significant number of conservative women elected? Well, I think 2020 is the year of the woman, but for real this time. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Like the right women. And I think the story has to go back to Justice Amy Coney Barrett as the first ever female originalist now to sit on the Supreme Court. She really embodied and I think paved the way for these strong, smart women who care both about their country and their families um, to succeed. And following her are the 11 incumbent GOP House women that kept their seats, and then now 13 new women that were successful at the ballot box. And I think that they were successful because they they made their election about policy. They made their election about here's who's going to Washington to get the job done for you, not for a special interest, not for business as usual, but to advance common sense, kitchen table issues amidst a very chaotic and crazy Washington. And the larger story of all of this that I think is super interesting right now is that these women really represent, I think, a complete um, new shift and, and rebirth, if you will, of feminism, that it's no longer about choosing between a career and family or between empowerment or conservatism, between freedom or servitude. It, it really is an opportunity that you can choose to do both and you can do it in a way that protects your family, strengthens your family with a partner and still have a fulfilling and lasting professional career. And I'm, I for one am just thrilled that we have shattered kind of all of the norms around feminism that's only celebrated one type of woman, the liberal pro-choice woman. We basically turned that on its head and we're celebrating Justice Barrett just as much as I'm celebrating these new 13 conservative women that have just been elected to the House. Jess, I couldn't agree more. And I, I love that you brought up Judge Barrett because it's just, it's, you know, it's like a one-two punch. Like you're just, you're, you got to get so hyped thinking about all these wonderful women now being part of the United States government. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about one of the great programs you have over at Heritage Action, which is your Sentinel program. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So Heritage Action Sentinels are basically the front line for freedom in congressional districts across the country. They know the issues. They lead in their communities. They're grassroots all-stars. They've got relationships with their members of Congress. And in the case of uh, 13 uh, very brave individuals, Sentinels actually ran for elected office this uh, cycle. And so we had Sentinels that won positions from uh, a soil and water conservation job in Florida to county commissioners, multiple state representatives and state senators. And then now uh, the incoming 
uh, Congresswoman from New Mexico's 2nd District, Yvette Harrell, who has been a Sentinel with us for over five years. And we're so excited to welcome her here to Washington to serve in the U.S. Congress. I am so excited that she was elected. We are actually, we're hoping to interview her on the Daily Signal podcast uh, sometime soon. Um, She is just fantastic. Could could you just take a minute to tell us a little bit more about Harold and um, who she is and and what her vision is uh, coming into Congress? Well, she is fantastic. I hope you can spend some time with her later. She fought an incredibly hard race in New Mexico's 2nd District, and she's really unique. She's a member of Cherokee Nation, for real. Uh, She will be the first Native American Republican woman to serve in the U.S. Congress. But even more than any of that, she's an entrepreneur. She's a, a strong and fierce defender of the Second Amendment. She's unabashedly pro life, and she is going to be a, a leader amongst many women coming in for conservative issues here in Washington. She knows what it takes to stand up for conservative policy. And I'm so excited to work with her in her professional capacity now as she hopes to represent New Mexico too. It's been a long time coming and we're, we're really proud of her. Among other congresswomen who are have been elected, newly elected, are there others that you think, gosh, you really, as a conservative woman, you have to keep your eye on these new representatives? Who should be who should we be watching out for? Oh, for sure. So there's there's actually a long list. Marjorie Green is the next congresswoman from Georgia's 14th district. She's a mom. I think she has three kids. She's a business owner. She's super strong on uh, border security, fierce advocate for Second Amendment rights. I'm looking forward to seeing what she does. Mary Miller out of Illinois 15. Uh, she's a mother of seven, grandmother of 17 grandchildren. Um, she teaches Sunday school. She's run, ran her family farm for the last 40 years. I mean, just a testament of someone that um, chose to pursue a career and to have a loving family. And then let's not overlook um, Senator-elect Lummis on the Senate side. This is a woman that um, is well-known. She previously served um, in the House. She was a founding member of the conservative House Freedom Caucus at the time, but she also is a mother, a grandmother. She's a cattle rancher, um, and she's now going to be Wyoming's um, senator. And so we're super excited for her um, and, and eager to see her join the ranks of Senator Joni Ernst and Marsha Blackburn and Kelly Leffler, all strong women that have come uh, into the Senate to lead uh, for conservative issues on everything from life issues to really interesting things in finance, in ag, um, and certainly uh, in the in the efforts of healthcare. So I'm looking forward to working with her as well. I know I'm such a nerd. I love the House Freedom Caucus, and I just can't wait for the day where we do conversations with conservatives at the Daily Signal and with the Heritage Foundation, and that's where the House Freedom Caucus comes and do a press conference. And I just can't wait for the day I show up and it's half women, half men, and women are represented there. It's just going to be such a... uh, I don't know, a proud lady moment for me. (laughs) A proud lady moment. I mean, that's an awesome way to think about it, right? Conservative women are resolute. And we have, it seems like we've finally come to the other side of, you know, the, the very harsh and extreme feminist movement of the last 30 years. And we're ready to reclaim 
the original type of feminism that started in Seneca Falls and take it back for conservative women um, and be what it's really supposed to be about, which is providing opportunity um, and advancement for all women, not just a specific type of women. And I think that's why so many people are so excited about Justice Barrett, about these 13 new House members, about Senator Lummis. I mean, these are these are a lot of reasons to be proud of the movement right now. And that's such a great segue to my next question is, how do you think this will affect the pro-life movement and pro-life legislation on Capitol Hill? Well, I, I think it's certainly going to help. I think that first and foremost, women are 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 have more issues than just life issues that we care about. Life is a huge issue and women in particular have such a strength to talk about it, to talk about the unique role of being a mom, of delivering a child and protecting life at its most, um, you know, at, at, at its most early phase in the womb. And so I think when you have women talking about this issue, it, it really attacks the left that tries to say, you know, no, women should have their abortion and put aside their family to pursue their career. We're going to be able to talk directly about that and kind of push that in the corner, which I think is going to be really strong. But even more so than that, I I think not only with the women coming in, but this wave of pro-life members writ large, I think is more so evidence of just pushing back against the extremism of the liberal left right now and their complete celebration of of abortion, you know, shouting their abortion, being comfortable with things like infanticide. I mean, this is no longer the party of rare and safe. This is the party of extreme and celebratory. And so having pro-life members supporting the Hyde Amendment, trying to get Planned Parenthood funding out of the federal government, out of taxpayers' pockets, um, and really limiting all of that and, and working back at the state level, I think is significant. It's certainly a, a moment in this country where things are changing. And I'm excited for this new wave of women to come in and speak authoritatively on this issue. So Jessica, let's talk just for a moment, kind of big picture presidential election. We're, we're still watching this election unfold and that there are a number of lawsuits which both the Trump campaign and the Republican Party have filed in an effort to make sure uh, that there was no voter fraud. So can you just explain what exactly is happening with these lawsuits right now? Absolutely. So Right now, we are in a situation where not every state um, has officially certified the election. Yes, you have the major media networks that have come in and called the election, but that's not really their role. It really is the role of the states to certify it. And we are still waiting on that to come through, but we're also waiting on the recount in a state like Georgia. And so there's going to be a lot of balls up in the air for the litigation and recount efforts. And it's important to be patient. It's important to recognize, as Vice President Biden has said, that democracy takes time and time is what we need right now to make sure. So when you look at the litigation that's going on, what's trying to be done is an assessment of whether or not legal votes were counted. So you look at a state like Pennsylvania that has had on record fraud where absentee ballots don't have dual signatures, where they were sent in um, and postmarked after the date 
those are the types of ballots that should be thrown out and not counted. Unfortunately, it looks like that they were counted. And so what litigation will do is it'll reach back in at the most local level to these state board of elections and basically go through and certify whether or not the votes were legal or not. And so that takes time. And it also takes people to be in the room helping count these ballots and ensure the sanctity of our election. So I think we all need to just, you know, be really patient to see this process unfold. If we rewind back to 2000 with Bush v. Gore, it took 36 days for the country to basically be on pins and needles and wait for Florida to be officially called. If you remember then, Vice President Gore thought he had won, started resuming activities as if he had won, uh, but he was never president, right? And so I think we need to let the legal system run its course Um, and recognize that there is fraud that exists and whether or not it's enough to flip our election or not, we don't know. And that's the point of the litigation. So that's where we are. Unfortunately, I think it means we're going to have to be patient a little bit longer. But in the meantime, all eyes are definitely turning to Georgia. We recognize that regardless of what happens with the presidential, that the two Senate races in Georgia are paramount to Um, the future of the Senate and in many ways the future of our republic because of everything that the Senate will be responsible for going forward the next, you know, two to four years. Jess, is there any rush to get these election results? Uh, The Electoral College doesn't meet until December, correct? Right. The Electoral College meets in December and and they would certify um, uh, the official votes the first week of January. And so, you know, there is a little bit of a rush when you look at how much time between now and then and how much time it takes to go county to county. But in terms of the, the you know, the major media networks jumping the gun before these states were able to, to finish counting and, and get their results out, I think that they were, were premature um, and they need to slow down and we need to wait. And we have a legal system in place for a reason. And that is what needs to run its course right now. What happens if voter fraud does go unchecked? What what does that ultimately mean for the future of our democracy? Well, let's hope that never happens, right? We know that voter fraud exists. We know that um, that there are manipulations at the local level. And then there's simple slip ups, like people forgetting to do a double signature or having the witness signature, or they postmark their absentee at a later date, or in a state like Nevada, where you had a state send out mail-in ballots to every single voter without even their requests. So some of this stuff is going to have to be fixed at the state level. And I think that you see a model of, of state legislation, of changes that were made to a state like Florida after the 2000 election that that can really be a model um, for other states in the country that need to tighten up on some of their voter laws. You also look at states that continue to have same-day registration, no voter ID, and you just, of course, there's going to be fraud because there's no safeguards in place to safeguard against it. So ultimately, if this fraud is allowed to run unchecked for years and years and years to come, I think that just deteriorates our trust in the electoral system. It deteriorates our trust um, in the in the election process itself. But that's why we're working so hard to make sure that this election um, is not built on the backs of fraud, but that it is that is actually fair um, and reflective of, of what voters want. And that's ultimately what we want, right? At the end of the day, we want to have confidence that whoever is representing us, whether in the House, in the Senate, or as president, that they got there legally. They got there legally, not through 
you know, fraud and, and, and voter manipulation. Well, and I love on the left, you know, the goalposts keep shifting. Before the election, it was, you know, voter fraud doesn't happen. It's just voter suppression. And now, you know, the, the Biden is up in some states. It's now, oh, OK, voter fraud happens, but it's not enough to sway the election and they'll never talk about voter suppression again. Yeah, the hypocrisy of the left the last 10 days, if I could count the list <laughs> of things, I mean, we need a whole other show for that guy. <laughs> it has been, it has just been wild. I mean, one, go back to this issue of feminism that we started talking about. I mean, you would have thought that, you know, Kamala Harris <laughs> is the end all be all for everything women. I mean, look no further on this hypocrisy than that just the complete contrast between the praise for her versus the response from the media to Justice Barrett. You know, one is completely lauded for shattering the glass ceiling and every little girl's dream has come true. And the other is smeared and made to be a character. And, you know, on Kamala Harris, I've seen so many posts of, well, regardless of what you believe, just be glad that a woman is there. And it's like two things. One, if everyone on the left really believes so much in in women and race, why is it that Kamala Harris only got one percent in the primary? She didn't even she wasn't able to be at the top of the ticket. She wasn't a, a elected at the top of the ticket. She was appointed as the running mate to Joe Biden. So like let's just be clear about how much people actually wanted to elevate her versus Joe Biden. So that's one. But then two, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not sure that I'm in a place to celebrate someone that I completely disagree with their views and beliefs on everything from life to economic issues. I mean, at a certain point, we have to celebrate the people that most align with what we believe in. Yes, we should be respectful. Yes, we should find places to work together. But going out of our way to celebrate anyone that we are you know, fundamentally opposed to with our belief system, I think is a step too far. And, and at the end of the day, we probably should recognize that it is a society that people really just cheer for the people they agree with. Yeah, well said. <laughs> yeah, I think there's such a need to get back to a concrete focus on the policy issues and actually looking at where do these individuals stand on the issues that I care about, on the issues that are going to affect generations to come. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really critical. We have to do our homework on that. Absolutely. Um, Jessica, we could we could keep going and going on this, but we're going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining the show. It's been uh, great to chat about both the the successes that we've seen and some of just the exciting news we've seen during this election, and then also just this ongoing process as we're continuing to to watch things litigated and this whole process unfold. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And I would say, go women. Go women. <laughs> Stay tuned because up next, we're going to be talking with Kate Trinko about what she saw in Philadelphia over the weekend as Americans took to the streets after multiple media outlets declared Joe Biden the winner of the election. But first, I want to tell you all about where you can find all of The Daily Signal's latest videos and documentaries, and that is YouTube, of course. The Daily Signal YouTube page offers short videos that break down policy issues and some longer documentaries, like the recent video we 
re-released on the sisters who ran the ice cream shop in Kenosha, which was burned to the ground by rioters. We always have new content coming out. So if you're not driving, go ahead and pull out your phone and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube page so you never miss another video. It is a wild time in American history, and one of the things that I think this season will end up being really marked by is all of the protests and the rallies in the streets. Of course, we've seen that some of them have been violent, and others are just loud, people getting out and practicing their First Amendment right. Our colleague Kate Trinko was in Philadelphia this past weekend and was one of those people out on the streets, mainly observing and talking with Americans about their thoughts on the election results. And we're super excited to have Kate here with us today to share what she saw. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you wrote this great piece for the Daily Signal titled, Six Things I Saw at Dueling Trump-Biden Rallies in Philadelphia. Um, And we're going to talk about some of those things that you saw. But first, can you just set the scene for us? Because this was a wild weekend in Philadelphia, and you got up there right around the time um, that a number of media outlets declared that Biden had won Pennsylvania, putting him over the 270 electoral votes needed to win the White House. So what exactly was that scene in Philly? Yeah, I did not exactly know what I was getting into. Like, obviously, I knew that Philadelphia was the site of vote counting and Pennsylvania was one of the most contested states. But um, I uh, very much underestimated what it was like. And actually, I found out that the media had called the race for Joe Biden. I actually sent Virginia a picture. I was at a rest stop in Delaware called the Biden Welcome Center. And I was like, why is everyone taking selfies in front of the sign? And um, then I got a text from Virginia who actually let me know that the media had declared Biden the winner. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so <laughs> I was about 45 minutes outside of Philly at that point. So I get into Philly and it is crazy. There is so much honking in the center city area. Um, I, at one point, was next to a woman, and she's honking her horn and screaming, woohoo, woohoo. And then I was behind um, one of those tourist buses, um, and on the roof of it, there's girls taking selfies and doing the peace sign and, like, I think shouting. And just, it's very, very noisy. (laughs) Um, You know, and part of me was, although I have a lot of you know, concerns about President Biden's policies, it was like, well, I guess I would rather people be celebrating than burning stuff down. But um, yeah, the honking just continued throughout the afternoon in the center city. It just had this crazy atmosphere of people were just really, really excited. But then, as you mentioned, there was also a pro-Trump rally. And I had known that there were going to be um, people from both sides there. And that's why I thought it would be so interesting to check it out. Kate, I was also in D.C. this weekend. And it was the same thing. Like, I, I was in my apartment and the the weather was nice and the windows were open. It's like, that's weird. There's a lot of traffic. And then I realized it was people right around the city honking their horns. (laughs) Um, But you spoke with a woman who said that she supported President Trump because she actually had lived in communist China. Can you tell us a little bit about that conversation? Yeah. So one of the things that 
I noticed at the Trump side of things was how diverse it was, which is really not, of course, the depiction the mainstream media gives. So I spoke to this one woman. Um, her name is Michelle. She didn't want to give her last name. And um, yeah, she had lived in China. And she said that she supported Trump because she thought freedom mattered. She was concerned that Biden was going to take the country in a socialist direction. Um, she noted that in China, people's voice cannot be heard. She was worried the same could happen in the U.S. And she said that, you know, she voted for uh, Trump, that she voted for freedom because I want to say whatever I want to say. And I thought that was a really powerful perspective. Yeah. And you talked to <laughs> what? No, sorry. You were probably thinking I was doing the next one. Oh, I yeah. No, it's okay. I know. I, car- I carry the weight of the show on my back. <laughs> I make you do everything. <laughs> Sorry. I just not make myself laugh so much. Listen, audience, if you didn't know, Lauren's got a little bit of an ego. <laughs> Kate, you talked to lots of folks. You also had a conversation with a former Obama supporter who turned a Trump supporter. So why did that person make that change? I don't think I've ever really heard that perspective from the media. Yeah, that was really interesting. Um, His name was Dana. Um, Again, didn't want to give his last name, which I think, you know, as a journalist, I always try to get last names. But at the same time, I was a little bit like, well, I can understand why people are worried in the current atmosphere, frankly. Um, So I didn't push as hard as um, I might normally. But yeah, Dana, Dana was a black man. And he had a fascinating perspective. Um, he has formerly voted for Ross Perot, Ralph Nader, and Jimmy Carter, as well as Barack Obama. So a true independent, I would say. Um, so, you know, I was like, yeah, you voted for Obama twice. What's up with that? And um, then switching to Trump twice. And he said he didn't trust the Clintons. He had a lot of uh, criticism over Hillary Clinton's position on Libya, which I have to say, I've talked to a lot of voters that sort of threw me for a curveball that that was what he focused on. But it was. Um, and, um, you know, he had concerns about Biden's health and ability to stay in office. He referred to Senator Harris as, I believe, another empty suit or something along those lines. And, you know, we talked a bit and I was like, a lot of people think Trump is racist and they're surprised that he actually did better among black male voters and black female voters, actually, this time around than he did in uh, 2016, according to the exit polls. And, um, you know, he was, he was saying, you know, Trump has given black people opportunities. Um, he had this one line. He said a lot of people would say if he's a racist, referring to Trump, he's one of the worst racists that people have ever seen. And what he was referring to is black people are doing better in America under President Trump. So if he actually hates them, like he's not acting like it. Um, and, you know, the other interesting thing is Dana, um, I believe he was 63, and he told me, like, he wasn't a full citizen of the United States until he was eight. And I was like, what do you mean? Were you an immigrant? Or, and he was like, no. You know, I was eight years old by the time the Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Act, all the, that important legislation passed. So here is someone who, you know, clearly lived in a country that had very severe racism as a child and doesn't think that Trump is racist. So I just thought that was a very powerful perspective. Yeah, it's a perspective that uh, you certainly don't hear much from the mainstream media. um, But it was really interesting to see with this election that 
increasingly minority populations, I think, are um, kind of becoming more and more conservative in some of their policies. And um, they really, in many ways, turned out to support President Trump this election. Uh, I was really fascinated, though, Kate, you took a lot of, of great pictures at these rallies. And one thing that you took photos of was the number of anti-Trump signs. And you said that you almost saw more anti-Trump signs than you did pro-Biden signs. Um, and I was also in D.C. briefly on Saturday, and I kind of noticed the same thing as I was driving through the streets that both things that people were shouting um, and signs people had, it was almost less excitement over Biden and just more excitement over getting Trump out. Does does this disturb you at all? Um, I think it's, well, I mean, it disturbs me insofar as, you know, it seems like, I, I think one thing that really struck me and has struck me a lot in the past four years is the lack of empathy from Americans on the left toward Americans on the right and the lack of understanding of where they're coming from and the willingness to uh, seemingly believe anything about Trump. And I, I think you just really saw that at, with these signs. I think one of the ones that really stuck out with me the most um, and I should say there were a lot of printed signs, you know, that said Biden Harris, but among homemade signs, it was mainly anti-Trump. And, you know, I always think if you bother to make a homemade sign, like you're really passionate. And also as a journalist, um, I just love homemade signs. Like they have the funniest messages a lot of the time. They're so interesting. So I always try to photograph as many of those as possible. And I just get such a kick out of it. But um, one of the ones that really wasn't funny or anything, it just read nurses hate Trump. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? What? I mean, I, I don't know. It was like, it didn't really make a point about COVID. It didn't even bring up COVID as far as I saw, unless there was a, something on the back of it. It just was like so hateful and mean and random. And I was, I, I don't know, that one really threw me. And um, yeah, I just felt like, um, and you can see all the signs on dailysignal.com um, that I thought were worth uh, putting up. But yeah, just a lot of anti-Trump signs, a lot of things like um, surrender to democracy, I believe, was one of them. It felt a little random. I mean, some of it just got a little bit weird <laughs> with the crowd. Um, at one point, there was like this, uh, I don't know if it was bicycles or cars holding it up, but this huge eagle, which Philadelphia has the Eagles football team. So I don't know. I, was, I didn't really get the connection there. Um, there was also... Um, Someone had a Joe Biden flag that was like a mashup of the gay pride flag and the American flag. That was a little random. Um, there were one or two people dressed as, um, Lauren will probably know this or kill me for not knowing this, but um, the mascot for maybe Philadelphia's hockey team, Gritty, which at, oh, yeah. at first I was like, <laughs> what? Did everyone just think it was Halloween or like whatever? But then I have a friend who lives in Philadelphia and she told me Gritty has actually become a left wing meme. So it wasn't as random as I thought. <laughs> there were a bunch of people wearing T-shirts that said, I believe it was bad things happen in Philadelphia, which I guess is a line from President Trump's debate with uh, Vice President Joe Biden. And uh 
yeah, I guess people in Philadelphia like were like, screw you. <laughs> Things do happen here. We're going to wear this T-shirt. I don't know. It was kind of random. So there was a lot of anti-Trump stuff. Also, at one point, um, there was like a crowd milling around. Um, and by the way, I just want to be clear, like everyone was wearing masks, but there was no social distancing <laughs> in any of this. And I just, you know, a lot of conservatives have pointed this out and it is infuriating when you think about some of the other roles that this all went down but anyway so one of these crowds and they were just sort of random and they were just chanting stuff and like they were singing like goodbye song at one point a famous one that i can't recall right now and then at one point actually to my surprise they started chanting usa i was like okay that's not normally okay. what you expect from a liberal crowd okay yeah, encouraging um yeah and then at another point they started saying um you know the f word donald trump um, they did not say the F word, obviously, but uh, yeah. so well, yeah, they did say the F word. They just well, didn't yeah. use it. <laughs> right. I'm trying to, I'm trying to not uh, trying to keep it PG. Trying to keep it PG. Yeah, I just want to be clear. They were not. Um, my younger sisters they used to sing an Avril Lavigne song when they were like 10 years old, and it had a swear word in it. And instead of singing out loud the swear word, they would be like D word, and <laughs> that was not what this crowd was doing. Wait. What Avril Lavigne song had a bad word in it, Kate? I think this was in her second album. Not, not, it's complicated, but it's been a minute, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kate, what's, what sticks out to me, I mean, this really is a, a tale of two Americas. And I think this is unfortunately what people are seeing. And, you know, I pulled up a, a tweet by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, our, our, our good friend. She tweeted out, you know, is anybody archiving these Trump sycophants for when they try to downplay or deny their complicity? I mean, and you show, you know, you talked about these folks who wouldn't even give you their last name because they're so afraid of being identified by supporting Trump. And then on on the left, you know, it's like this big COVID doesn't exist parade. And uh, there's just something like that just gets me so fired up thinking about that and kind of where we're, we are in America. Yeah, and I think it's very scary. I mean, yeah, I thought AOC's tweet was alarming. Um, I, I think many Trump fans are like, and did tweet at her, like, yeah, take them all down. I'm proud of every tweet I've written. <laughs> like, have at it, AOC. But, um, I, I, you know, it's funny. Like, in his remarks on Saturday, like, you know, Vice President Biden discussed unity and all that. But I've noticed among leftists, not really in Philadelphia, they didn't seem to get into this specifically, but just in general, like it doesn't seem like they want to be unified. They seem to say like Trump people are so evil that the only way is to change them and you can't accept them, which is, well, they want to be unified. They want everybody to agree with them. That's the unity they want. Right. Right. Like you all have to think exactly the same. And I will say though, one of the interesting things was, um, so by the time that I got to the dueling rallies, um, which was a little bit, I think I was there like two, the Trump rally was significantly smaller than the, um, Biden rally. And um, by the way, they weren't like formal rallies. They were just people on either side, very excited. And um, I mean, that might have been because Philadelphia is, this, you know, a very blue city. Um, there's not a lot of Philadelphians who vote Republican. 
it might have also just been that I missed, um, I think it was supposed to begin at noon or something, so the highlights. But um, anyway, so you had these two crowds of people, and they were separated by police in the middle. And the Trump folks were, like, blasting um, some Trump speech. I'm not sure when it was from. And then the Biden people were, like, shouting. And they, of course, had signs, including saying F word Trump. And, like, it was kind of weird to see them everyone lined up like that it, it had a little bit of a battle line feel like and you know all the cops are in the middle and I should note like Philadelphia was ready for violence and I don't think there ended up being any but um tons and tons of shops were boarded up um you know like I passed a furniture store a West Elm a chain that was like hey we're still open you know ignore <laughs> that we're boarded up everywhere um and you know like one of the first things I saw coming in the city was what I assume was the National Guard um holding huge guns sorry I'm not a gun expert so I don't know what they were but I was like oh okay and then you know there were just tons of police other National Guards it, it had a little bit of a weird feeling to be honest yeah that is weird well Kate, we really appreciate your reporting and, you know, you going into Philadelphia on your you, the, the very precious days off that you have. So such an interesting conversation. And, you know, we'll definitely be following this in the days and the weeks to come. Great. Thanks for having me on. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at Heritage.org. Now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to the 13 newly elected conservative congresswomen. We are so excited to have seen the number of conservative women in the House more than double this election. Women are stepping up to lead in powerful ways. And we have so many incredible role models who have gone before us to thank for that. Spoiler, but many of these new representatives will be on the show in the coming weeks and months. We are hoping to have a congresswoman-elect on the show next week, so make sure to tune in. These are some problematic women you want to get to know because they are going to influence the future of our nation. Ah, it's so exciting. Like It's just incredible to see all of these powerful women uh, really, I feel like, kind of like taking, taking their place in a way in, in leadership and in our country. It is, it's an exciting time to be alive, to say the least. Well, I remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking to Representative Debbie Lesko, and I asked the question that I, you know, I've always wanted to ask is, why are there not more women on the House Freedom Caucus? And you know, her answer was fair. She's like, there's only you know, like 12 of us and we can't be on every committee. And so this is the answer that having more Republican women will have more conservative women sit at the table on more committees and in more spaces. And it's, it's just such a big win for us here on the show, but also, you know, just for America in general. No, I, when I think of like, what is the country that I want my kids and my grandkids to inherit? 
I I do I feel like have just like already more peace thinking about like okay there are powerful conservative women who value life who value freedom who are stepping into these leadership roles and I truly believe uh, will leave the nation better off than they found it so this is really it's it's just super super exciting to see. All right, finally, it is time for our Twitter poll. So all our polls are posted Thursday morning on my Twitter account, Virginia underscore Allen 5. So be sure to vote because we love hearing from you all. This is just a super fun way to get your thoughts on different random things. We took a break last week uh, because the election was so crazy, but we are back this week with a great poll. Uh, And last week we had asked you all, what is scarier than Halloween And 57% of you all voted on woke education policy, which I do have to agree with you. We have certainly loved having some great women on this show, like Alana Yarn-Fishbein, who spoke uh, just a couple weeks ago about the push to really um, be preserving our founding principles within education and push back on the left's message in our schools. So um, if you didn't listen to that episode, go back and listen to it. It was a great conversation. But this week's Twitter question is, what goal do you still want to achieve in the last seven weeks of 2020? So we list a few options. Get exercise consistently. Maybe there's a certain book that you want to finish. Uh, you want to reconnect with a certain friend, or you can leave a comment below. And you can let us know what that final goal is. The year is not over. We have seven weeks. Let's finish strong. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.